Welcome to Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. My name is Dr. Clayton Johnson. I'm a veterinarian with Carthage Veterinary Service and the host of our podcast here for today. Um, I want to give a, a big thank you to uh, Jim Eady and his team at swineweb.com. Uh, I was just chatting with our guests about my introduction into the podcasting world and my general technical illiteracy. And Jim was wonderful in helping to, to coach me through getting this podcast set up. Um, he also helps us a lot with advertising and spreading the word about uh, the good messages that we try to bring to our audience. So to, to Jim and his team at swineweb.com, thank you for all your support in setting up the podcast. And for anybody in the audience that's looking for a, a great source of information about uh, news in the pig industry, if you're looking for a one-spot shop to go find the latest and greatest updates in the swine industry, whether it's our podcast or, or any other updates that are out there, please check out swineweb.com. For today's episode of Swine Doc Pod with Carthage, I am blessed to have with me a couple of outstanding researchers from the University of Minnesota. Joining me is Dr. Kim Vanderwall, Associate Professor at the University of Minnesota, as well as Dr. Dennis McCow, a postdoctorate researcher at the University of Minnesota. And I'm going to let uh, Kim and Dennis introduce themselves, but to uh, tease the topic, we're going to talk about PERS and specifically some of the big challenges we've had with PERS and understanding uh, genetic diversity and what that means in terms of cross protection and, and virulence. So uh, Dr. Kim, uh, if you wouldn't mind, could we have you start first here with the introduction? Uh, sure thing. And and first, I want to say thanks so much to, to Clayton for hosting us today. Um, this, I think, is going to be a very interesting discussion, and we're happy to be um, on this podcast. Um, as uh, Clayton introduced, I'm Kim Vanderwall. I'm an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, I am part of the swine group there in the College of Veterinary Medicine. And uh, my research focuses on understanding how viruses spread through animal populations, and in particular, pigs. Um, I got started in this um, field working on PED and PERS, um, but I quickly learned as an epidemiologist or, or from an epidemiological perspective that you cannot understand the spread of PERS without understanding its genetic diversity, how quickly it's changing through evolution, and you can't understand what the virus is doing in these swine populations without understanding the immunology of the disease. So that really brought us to the, the research that we're going to be discussing today um, in terms of, of how we're linking in um, immunological information to try to better understand the evolution and spread of this virus. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Kim. Uh, Dr. Dennis, please introduce yourself to the audience. Thank you very much, Clayton. And um, like Kim said, I'm also very honored and happy to be here today uh, to talk about PERS which is one of my uh, very interesting um, diseases that I work with. But just to introduce myself, um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher currently working with uh, Dr. Vanderwaal. Um, I am a veterinarian by training uh, with a specificity on uh, PhD in epidemiology. And so uh, for the last three years that I've been working with Dr. Vanderwaal, I have been looking at different swine diseases, uh, primarily looking at PED and PARS, just the same as she has. And my passion and keen interest is in understanding transmission dynamics of infectious diseases in livestock um, production systems. And swine production systems happen to be one of the major and central um, production systems in the US. And so uh, it, it happens, therefore, that uh, PARS will feature very, very greatly in my work because it's also a very expensive disease. And from conversations with um, 
soil producers and veterinarians in the field in Minnesota and elsewhere, um, it also comes to me very, very uh, succinctly that it's a problem that has been around for decades and um, we really haven't gotten a handle of it. But every day we keep learning new things uh, through different techniques and different research. And part of what we are sharing today, uh, we hope that will be a building block that will bring us closer to answering some of the very nagging questions that just don't go away with when it comes to pearls. Excellent. Well, and thank you, uh, Dennis and Kim, for joining us. I know that we are uh, just a little bit before the annual Layman Conference, um, certainly one of the premier uh, conferences and educational events in our industry every year. And I know it's a it's a huge amount of work for, for you and the whole team at the University of Minnesota to put that on. So I know you guys are right in the throes of preparing that. Um, hopefully this is a, a teaser for people to get excited for the, the Layman Conference, because I know that you'll have a, a big part on the agenda there and, and as well as many others sharing good information. But certainly PERS is at the forefront of, of all producers. And I would imagine, um, you know, Dennis, you talked about uh, meeting with producers in Minnesota. I would, I would imagine some of what you heard is frustration, not only about the fact that PERS makes our pigs sick. I mean, obviously, it's, it's probably the most devastating disease we deal with in the United States today, uh, but also our total lack of understanding about why some farms get very sick and then other farms with what seems to be a similar virus don't get as sick or probably even more frustrating. I have a sow farm today that gets sick with this strain of purse and we start to recover and we start to recover and we start to recover. And then four, five, six months later, we get sick again. And all of my diagnostics tell me it's the same virus. And I'm saying the same virus in air quotes, right? Because that's the first problem with PERS is we really don't have any idea of what's the same virus and what's a different virus. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in that, Dennis, but do, do you want to kind of comment a little bit about some of the challenges that we have with historical genomic sequencing and trying to assign sameness or homology characteristics to a virus that is inherently shades of gray and not very black and white? I like that you introduced the issues about characterization and uh, genetic sequencing. Uh, and I would like to give a backstory. Not so long ago, I think uh, towards the end of 2021, um, the Midwest section of the US experienced um, a severe outbreak of a new sublineage or a new, a new variant of PERS. And um, from sequencing and characterization, it looked like you know, some of what um, have been circulating in the, in, in, the, in the swine population for maybe last 10 years. But yet in some farms, uh, you'd get 80% uh, piglet mortalities, while in some other farms who would take samples to the lab and they'd be told they have the same virus would have, you know, barely within normal range of PARS um, outbreaks. And so that was a very baffling question. And through investigation, um, we came to realize that it was actually a new variant that had certain uh, changes in specific um, sites of uh, immune importance, which I hope we'll talk about at some point. Um, that was causing the uh, pig to respond slightly differently and have a, a slightly severe clinical disease. So now going back to the question, um, one of the challenges that we've had for a long time with PERS is that the most of the information that we have is based on the genetic characterization and the genetic profile of the virus. Now, while that is very important and very informative, the way the host, which is the pig here, uh, interprets that information may vary. 
And it may well be that a virus that has very similar um, genetic sequence with a, a difference of one or two um, amino acids in a certain site or three nucleotides here um, in a certain site would, um, you know, cause a slightly different immune response in the host, uh, primarily because that particular mutation uh, is, re is responsible or interacts differently with the host immunity. And therefore, this lack or gap in terms of knowledge and information is one of the frustrating things when it comes to controlling PERS, because you know something, but then you don't know what you don't know. And that is the question that we try to answer each and every day, especially when it comes to the host immunity, because that part has not been widely uh, researched on. Very good. Kim, you want to jump in a little bit with your perspective? Yeah, if I can add to that a little bit. Um, you know, we've been trying to classify PERS into different genetic groups for a long time, whether we're using RFLP types or, or lineages. Um, both, in both cases, we're trying to, to group the virus into kind of meaningful groups that might tell us something about um, the, the phenotype of the virus or at least um, the epidemiological spread of the virus, right? Um, and, you know, two of the, the, the earliest things that I really started hearing producers saying about um, the immunology of the virus and how um, genetic information may tell us something about um, cross protection. The first thing is that farms have rebreaks. And so you this is, I think, the scenario that, that you described, Clayton, that you have a sow farm that breaks, seems to be getting better. And then six months later, it breaks again and the virus or the pigs are telling you that, that they're sick, right? And they're having abortions and all of those, those clinical signs. Um, but you sequence the virus and it's, it's uh, at least on OR5, 99, 99.5% um, the same. So what's going on here? The genetic um, information doesn't seem to be telling you that much, although maybe those changes had happened to be at particularly important immunogenic sites. Okay, so that could, that could be going on. The other thing that we hear, or one of the earliest things I, I heard in this field is that was frustrating for people is that you have two viruses that are quite different, you know, maybe they're eight to 10% different and um, yet cross protection seems okay. Um, the, the virus immunity seems to be broadly neutralizing enough that they're relatively protected from clinical disease. This is what, you know, the, the vaccine companies talk a lot about that's, that's, their modified lab vaccine um, protects against viruses that are, um, you know, quite dissimilar. Um, so, so now you have a situation that you have very close, related, closely related viruses in the farm causing rebreaks that um, appear to be breaking through the um, the herd immunity that's that's present on that farm. And then on the other hand, you have viruses that are really dissimilar, but cross protection seems okay. So, how are we supposed to take genetic information and let it tell us anything meaningful about whether or not two viruses are gonna be able to cross protect against each other. And that's really the, the research that we're gonna be talking about today. Could you give us uh, maybe a brief uh, history lesson, Kim? Cause I know um, you, you, uh, you've done a lot of work with epidemiology. And um, as I would imagine, you've been forced to come up with some fairly artificial categorization schemes, right? Because you, in epidemiology investigations, you kind of have to assign some level of sameness to, to do the investigation. You, at some point, you have to say, 
these are the same viruses, right? From point A to point B, I'm going to call that the same virus. Historically, how have you done that? Is it just a percent homology? Is it the lineage? Is it, are there certain specific parts of the genome that you've looked at more so than others? What, what appears to have been done historically and are any of those things better or worse than others? Uh, yeah, so historically, um, we have, as a, a field, some of this obviously predates me, um, but ha have used RFLP types um, to group viruses and say, this is a group of viruses that are the same and we can track its spread. Now, um, even early on, it was well recognized that RFLP types have a lot of challenges in how they're interpreted. You can have two RFLP types um, or two viruses with the same RFLP type that are actually very different. Um, and at the same time, you can have two viruses that are genetically very similar, but for, you know, particularly how the mutations may be in the virus, they get assigned a different RFLP type. So using RFLP types has been really challenging. Um, so more recently, we've been using this uh, lineage and sublineage based system, which really tries to group viruses based on their, um, their shared ancestry. So you have basically different ancestral families of the virus. Um, it's biologically more sound, um, but the issue is now is that the, the groups are pretty large. Lineages are quite large and they're not usually um, fine scale enough for sort of tracking the spread of a specific outbreak. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, and in both cases, they're not really telling you a lot about the cross protection between viruses. Um, and partly it's because we haven't done the work for lineages to know what, what the degree of cross protection is. And, um, but, but even so, I don't think that's that a single label is gonna be able to encompass cross protection. Um, probably the third way that you could um, use genetic data for epidemiological purposes is to actually use the specific sequences themselves. So this is now we're not trying to create classifications per se, but we're actually using the, you know, constructed evolutionary history of the viruses and all the different viruses we've collected from different farms or different locations and trying to use all of the information together to kind of infer what's going on. Um, but that's, that's a um, fairly complex analysis and it's, it's not really appropriate for day-to-day -day field management of, of disease. It's, you're not gonna go run an entire evolutionary model every time you want to see something and you need something more um, uh, quick and dirty to be able to talk about these viruses and maybe to try to estimate um, um, their immunological relationships to another. Just to chime in on, on Kim's point there, um, by and large, and for different reasons, most of the research and studies on PERS has focused on the O5 region, which is one of the offs for, um, of PERS. And there are a couple, I think nine other offs that exist. And, and, and this is not um, in any way um, faulting anybody. I mean, there were constraints in the past that you know, sequencing was not very easy. And so you, you, the portion you would get is what you would run with. Um, and the challenges now when it comes to focusing on just a particular portion of, uh, of the genome is that there could be other immunologically important changes or um, similarities or dissimilarities outside the area of focus. And those may get missed because you're focusing on uh, characterizing the, part, the, the virus just using one um, small reading frame. And so one of the things that we've seen now catching on is that with the um, you know, increasing accessibility of uh, whole genome sequencing that we are, we're also seeing that the industry is now adopting some of that 
and uh, some requests of very peculiar viruses, then you'd get a, a producer asking for a full genome sequence instead of uh, just the all five to better understand the virus. And I think this is uh, altogether helping with um, uh, leading us to the path of probably understanding parts a little bit better and cross protection and immune response much more better. Very good. Let's spend a little bit of time um, unpacking the, uh, the path from a genetic sequence to an antigen, okay, and what that means to the body, because I think that's a really important foundation for our audience to understand, and it is certainly far from intuitive. Um, even those of us with deep technical backgrounds um, probably can use a refresher here. So I'm going to go through it in layman's terms, and then I'll let both of you correct the, mis the missteps I make as I explain it. But the way I always think about it is um, viruses have a genetic code, no different than we as human beings and, and really every other organism on the planet. We have a genetic code and it's kind of the classic DNA or RNA sequence that we've always heard about, right? You've got G's and T's and, and A's and you've got different nucleotides that collectively serve as a genetic code and they code for proteins. So that, that coding is almost like the recipe, okay? Three of those nucleotides code for a specific uh, amino acid. And then the combination of amino acids result in a protein. And so no different than, than our body, our physical representation, our phenotype, if you want to use a, a breeding um, term, our phenotype is the result of the, uh, of the proteins created from our genetic code. Um, and ultimately the phenotype of the virus is what the immune system sees. And so Dennis, when you're talking about, you know, OR5 or open reading frame five, that's one small segment of the, of the PERS genome, but we think it codes for a part that's antigenically important, meaning we think it codes for a part of the final protein, the final structure of the virus that the body's immune system physically sees, right? We're talking at the microscopic level, but whether it's a macrophage or, uh, you know, um, the, uh, Oh, your, uh, uh, your germinal centers of your lymph nodes, right? Some part of the immune system physically sees that virus. And, and a, uh, an example that I try to use is like a, a wanted sign, like the old days back in the Wild West, there'd be a wanted sign with somebody's face on the wanted sign, right? The, the antigen or the, the proteins created by the virus that our immune system can recognize, it's like our face if we're on the wanted sign, right? And, and the immune system is trained to look for that specific part of it, but no different than um, my body, right? You can't put a picture of, of my liver or my spleen on the help wanted sign because nobody can see it, right? The, the good guys can't see that part of me. And so that's kind of the same way we think about um, viral genomes and even uh, you know other pathogens is we, need to, we don't need to really understand the entire genome or, or create immunity against the whole genome because a lot of that genome is creating protein that are uh, structural in nature. You know, they're much like my liver and my bones. They're things that are really important to me to be viable, but they're not the, they're not the things that go on the help wanted side. So that is, uh, that is my um, immunology for dummies course for the day. I will turn it over to, to you guys, the experts, to course correct anything that I said wrong there. And then if, if you somewhat agree with it, you know, the, talk about how that translates into PERS and, and the knowledge gaps we have, basically. The knowledge gaps about not understanding what the help wanted sign needs to look like. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I'll jump on your your wanted poster um, analogy there, and and you're right, you can't change your interiors, but if you're the the person that is wanted, there are things that you can do um, that um, may help you avoid detection. You could grow a beard, you could cut your hair or dye your hair, you could even put a hat on, you know, all these sorts of things to help um, you look less like whatever is in the poster. And um, small change, tiny small change, changes, right? Exactly. Um, and and that's a great analogy. You know, it's 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 uh, um, a little bit of a, a cartoon for what actually happens. But but we know that this this ecto domain, that's what we call the the region that 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 the host actually is likely be able to to um, interact with it on the virus, right? It's the ecto domain of the virus. That just means what's outside of the virus versus the innards. Um, and we, we know that these areas um, change more rapidly than the rest of the genome. Um, and we know that they particularly change in regions of that, that um, genome that are important for immune detection. So for example, there's a, a, a a mechanism called um, N-glycosylation. Um, I'm not gonna get into certain details here, but essentially it, it, if, if a certain pattern appears in the amino acid, as sugar attaches to it, and it can basically help mask or hide the epitope from what the, the antibodies are actually able to access or to actually bind to in the body. Um, in the same way, um, if, if there's um, small changes in the genome that changes how that that epitope, and, and I should define epitope. Epitope is actually the, the region or the, the part of the, uh, the protein that the antibodies would bind to. If that changes in any way or the, the way that the protein is folded changes, that can hide parts of the epitope or change it enough that the antibodies no longer recognize it when they see it again. Um, and so these are all, again, very small changes that can actually lead to big effects on whether the, the immune system is able to recognize a virus that is seen in the past. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about immune escape. Um, it's that the virus has evolved in such a way that now the, it's no longer recognized by the immune system. And these are why it, it starts being very hard to just say, oh, the virus is is you know three percent different, and now it's truly a different virus. Well, it depends what those three percent differences, where those actually have occurred. Some some mutations may not matter, um, or don't matter as much as others, and so you really have to get down into well, what's actually changing, and is that actually important for immune recognition? And maybe just to add onto that analogy, and, and you're you're totally right, and I agree with Kim that. The, the, the portion that is being seen in that part, the face on the poster. But um, as, as technology has also advanced now, going into the trajectory of the analogy, uh, sometimes um, when, when, when these reports are put out, you get additional descriptions of the person who's being sought after. You could be told they are five foot 10, they are 180 pounds and so on and so forth. And so while, while that very uh, well-recognizable part, which is the face, which is in this case, the O5, which is, very well known, uh, the other features help to better distinguish this particular um, wanted character. And it, it's pretty much the same when we're talking about parents. So all five is indeed very important when it comes to immune recognition and response. But other offs have also been found to contribute to um, some level of that recognition and that uh, epitope um, you know, um, antigen interactions. And so these offs, um, add some value when you consider them, 
uh, as part of your way of trying to understand host immune response and characterization of the virus. So we can consider the other offsets some of that additional layer of information that helps us better characterize the virus. So um, I think we've done a nice job of kind of framing up what information is needed. Um, the reality is we still don't have it, right? Um, whether it's for making a prognosis on how bad this outbreak will be because I have a sequence and it looks kind of like some other sequences I've seen before, or the explanation of the, the rebreak situation where it appears to be the same virus. But like you said, Kim, the pig tells us it's different and the pig never lies. If the pig tells us it's different, the pig is not making that up, right? So what 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 is the gap? Why don't we know that? And I know I know the oversimplified answer is because it's hard. Um, but what are the specific knowledge gaps that uh, that that exists? And what are you what's your team trying to work on to help us address those knowledge gaps? Yeah, I mean, I I think that one of the the most significant knowledge gaps is an understanding of how the genome and changes in the genome contribute to cross-protection or cross-recognition between viruses by the immune system. We have a sense that, you know, OR5 is probably important, and there's other ORFs that are in, um, beyond um, the OR5 region that are also important, but actually getting down to um, predicting kind of those fine-scale um, changes, we, we, we just haven't done. Um, so really, I would call the gap then is, is, is being able to translating the genetic information that we're receiving from sequencing to some sort of predicted cross-protection between those viruses. Um, traditionally, right now, what you would have to do is you'd have to go do an experiment every time and run, um, you know, get your antisera um, to a particular virus and then do some sort of cross-neutralization assay in the lab. Um, and that's just not feasible. We have way too many different variants of PERS out there to do that for every single one. Um, and it's not very timely either. It takes a while to run those. So, um, so we really would um, benefit from having a way to at least get an approximate estimation of cross protection between viruses. It's not gonna be perfect every time, but it at least is gonna give us some sort of information that we can act upon versus right now where we have pretty much no information. So, um, so that's really the, the purpose of our current project, um, which uh, we've received funding from, from National Science Foundation and USDA, is that um, we want to be able to start translating the genetic information to some sort of predicted cross-protection. So what we're doing is we're building, um, or we're taking data that's been generated by these sort of cross-protection or cross-neutralization assays. Um, so these are large panels of viruses with their associated antisera that are then, you know, um, analyzed to see how well they cross protect against each other. We have the genetic sequences associated with those various viruses. And if we have a good, you know, panel with enough diversity of viruses in there, we can start building a model and we use a machine learning model then to say, okay, these two viruses have these particular genetic changes or these particular amino acid changes. And we can feed that into the model and see how that is then associated with how well those viruses cross protect against each other. And if we have those pieces of information and we can train the model and say, hey, this model works pretty well, then we can say, okay, we have a model that has you know, um, some level of accuracy. In our case, our, our accuracy is um, around 75% to be able to predict um, high antigenic distance versus low antigenic distance. Um, and 
And then we can use that for a tool for new viruses that might appear and give us a kind of a first pass look of how well these two viruses that we're now interested in will um, cross protect with each other. We can do that with a computer model rather than having to do all of the background experimental work to get to the same point. And, and, and yeah, um, in effect, what that does, and it also complies with a lot of um, focus and where uh, current science and, and methods are moving to. Uh, over the years, there's been concern and need to move from uh, reduce, using too many animals in an experiment, reducing the number of animals they're using in an experiment. Um, and, and that's called you know, refinement of uh, research methods. And so some of what we are trying to do contributes to that goal, um, just refining the uh, way research is done, being able to answer the same questions with minimal cost and a, a little bit faster turnover, uh, turnaround time. Um, and, and computer models have proven in other kind of diseases and, and, and other setups that they can be able to do that pretty well. And uh, we hope that uh, through these uh, different studies and uh, uh, research that we are doing, we might also be able to bring that onto the uh, swine production industry and, you know, making it to be at par with other um, production systems and even human uh, research. So I'll try and paraphrase what I'm hearing. And again, you guys correct me if I, for what I get wrong, um, but you're, you're essentially looking at cross protection, right? With a, a precious few amount of, of samples and isolates from very specific PERS viruses. But much like we see with influenza, cross protection is difficult to predict, but we know that some strains have this ability to cross protect more commonly than other strains. And so we'll see that with PERS where this strain, this isolate appears to cross protect against a broader set of genomics than other strains we look at. And then um, through uh, machine learning, for lack of a better term, right, or through regression analysis, you'll be able to pull apart commonalities in the genome of those viruses that appear to have unique abilities to cross protect. Is that kind of a fair summary of what you're trying to do? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and once we can put all of these um, different amino acid changes, so what we include in our model, we include genetic distance in each of the ORFs. So we can account for, okay, is OR5 correlated with, with um, the degree of cross protection or four or three or two um, in our current model, that's, that's the data that we have um, included. Um, and then we can feed in the specific amino acids that changes. And, the, and what having a model tells us is that, well, in some cases we feed in, okay, sites, you know, 89 is different between these two viruses and we see no change or it's not, it's not correlated at all with, with the change in, in cross protection. So we can start filtering through and be like, okay, well that, that change there doesn't seem to be that important. But in, in contrast, other changes and changes that we've identified for the, the PERS type one model um, are areas that are um, close to epitopes or, or part of these sort of already known antigenic regions. And we've identified, our model picks up like, okay, these are the changes in these particular sites do seem to be associated with a change in cross protection. And, um, and it's not just, of course, one change that probably um, uh, uh, changes this cross, uh, the degree of to which two viruses cross protect against each other. It's some combination. And these machine learning models are flexible enough to kind of take into account interactions or the combination of, of, of um, changes that are occurring as well. Very good. 
I know that more power will make the, the, the model better with time. Um, but based on your initial evaluation, I think I heard you say that, you know, 70-ish percent of the, the variation you think you can explain. Is that, is that a fair statement right now? Um, yes, that's a fair statement at this point, uh, which essentially translates to seven out of 10 times. Um, the model will be able to pick apart um, how, you know, strains presented to it uh, relate in terms of antigenic distance. In which case we, you know, just extrapolating that, assuming that that was a pig, then we would be able to know how that pig would respond to two, you know, to a pair of viruses uh, exposed to it, um, whether they are genetically, you know, antigenically rather similar or dissimilar. And, and, and that would probably translate to some action um, on the part of the field uh, person or uh, provider, producer, sorry. Dennis, do you anticipate that um, the ability to do these comparisons will be available to someone like myself as a practicing veterinarian? So let me let's go through the the classic example, right? I have a sow farm that broke with a per strain six months ago, and we have one of these clinical flare-ups where the pigs tell us the virus has changed, and uh, I do my sequencing, and and I come back confused because it's ninety nine point five percent the same. Will I uh, at some point have the ability to take my sequences and share them with you or put them into some sort of website where you, you can give me this evaluation to say, uh, actually, we think we can explain the differences or no, we can't explain the differences. And maybe you actually have another strain that you're just not picking up in that farm. Is that something that you, you can hopefully develop for the industry? Indeed. Um, the idea and the hope is that at some point we'll have an interface or, or a tool or an app, depending on how you want to describe it. Um, which will allow uh, anyone really who has sequence data to uh, input or upload their sequences onto the platform and be able to tell compared to a certain library that is current enough, whatever is circulating in the, in, in the swine population, how antigenically dissimilar or similar is your virus um, on your farm. And, and I believe that uh, part of what will constitute that library will also be the existing uh, vaccines and um, I, that should contribute to how decisions are made uh, with regards to managing the immune um, profile of HAD, especially in the U.S. From my perspective, the, the questions you guys are trying to answer are in many ways the whole holy grail of PERS immunology. Um, predicting cross-protection, predicting which tools would be best applied to my existing situation. Those are those are just the their resources we don't have today, and and we make uh, a lot of poorly informed decisions. I won't even call them bad decisions because we're guessing a lot of times at the end of the day on what we're doing with applying um, uh, resources to, to PERS. And we rely on the pigs in a case-by-case -case basis to tell us what works and what doesn't work. Uh, we certainly want to make that better, but what what is the next step in this journey? Um, you know, Kim and Dennis, what what's part two of the of the evaluation? What other, what other questions can we can we answer? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess there's a few things I would I would point out um, from the get go, and and one is is that the models we've done so far they perform well, um, but they've been de designed for PERS type one. Now, the reason for this is that um, our intent is to do it for PERS type two, but we came across a group um, in um, Spain at the uh, Universidad de Complutense in uh, Madrid 
And they had already basically generated the type of data that we needed to feed into these models. So we said, okay, let's reach out to them and collaborate with them and, design, and, and test this model to see if it works in PERS type one. And so I was actually um, pleasantly surprised because our, actually our accuracy of our predictions were higher than I think I, I really expected that they would be. So I felt very good about that. So um, key next step, we wanted to do this for PERS type two. That's obviously going to be more relevant for the U.S. industry. Um, so key next step is to, to do this for PERS type two. And then we need to build out to this, um, you know, web-based platform that you can identify you can upload your two sequences or maybe it's more than two sequences that you're interested in and you get the, the readout for, for your sequences as well as compared to the, the um, you know, library of sequences that are, are in that, that, um, that platform. Um, so that's the next step is to build that out, but we need to develop that type two model. Um, the other, you know, potential hurdle that we'll have to address is, is how well does cross-centralization as assessed in a immune assay translate to the pig? Um, and so there are a lot of, you know, immunologists that will say, well, you know, it's, it's imperfect, right? So it doesn't, it's not a one-to-one -one translation um, of what we estimate for cross-protection in a experimental setup in a lab, you know, in a, in a, in a Petri dish um, to doing this in live animals. It's, it's not gonna be one-to-one, -one, but if it's not one-to-one, -one, is it meaningless? I don't think it's probably meaningless, but, but what sort of correlation do we actually expect between what we estimate in the lab versus in the animal? And we don't actually know what that relationship is. I would assume it correlates to some extent, but how well does it correlate? So that's the other piece that, that um, I think could be better quantified. Yeah, I think, I think part of the other thing that we also foresee as, as, as the next step is once we've identified all these key uh, changes that happen to the epitopes or the neutralizing sections of the virus, um, we, we envision that there would be need to research that further just to know what does that change mean to the host? Is it a change in the, uh, you know, the 3D shape of how the epitope looks like? Is it that the epitope is now shifting because there is a difference or there's a mutation that happened somewhere? Just getting uh, some biological meanings to those specific antigen, uh, antigenic sites that we see varying between viruses that are responsible for these um, variants in, in antigenicity. And I think at that point, then we'll have um, a lot of information that can really make us understand PARS better with regards to genetic as well as antigenic um, classification. Very good. Uh, I am uh, ignorant when it comes to research processes and timelines, but everything we're talking about doesn't just sound like one uh, postdoc program. It sounds like 10 of them. Um, Dennis, can we keep you at the University of Minnesota for the next 15 to 20 years to figure this out? Or, or what is a realistic timeline and resource needs to get all this done? I mean, I ask purely out of ignorance, is this something, Dennis, that you can lead in your time, uh, you know, over the, the next couple of years? Or is this something that's going to be a generational approach that, you know, Kim, you're going to have to continue to recruit um, additional postdocs and other, other graduate students to help uh, ultimately solve this problem over, over a longer period of time? I'd, I'd let Kim answer the question you posed to her, but sure, you can keep me at the University of Minnesota for, you know, for, for the life of me, I, I, and I'm saying this very humbly, I love the, com the, the community in the university and the lab and the Swine group is, I think it's one of the best in the world and I would love to continue working with them. 
but surely not as a postdoc. I think at some point I'd need to graduate into some better like a faculty member of some. But um, indeed, it's a it's a Herculean task if you think about it. There's a lot of man hours that need to go into it, a lot of um, resources financially and 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 so on that need to go into this kind of work. And if peradventure, then uh, I'm not there to continue. I'm I'm sure Kim will have the historical memory of what's been done and somebody else can take um, that work further. But sure, I'd love to stay around in Minnesota. Lovely place. Excellent. Um, I mean, I think I like the way you worded that, that a lot of these, these problems are generational um, mm -hmm. and not just generational within my own research program at University of Minnesota, but generational in terms of even the swine group at University of Minnesota and, and the research community in general. These are problems we've been working on for decades and, you know, decade, you know, two decades ago, I was, I was not working in research at that time. I was, a, I'd have to think about how old I was. I won't say how old I was two decades ago. Um, but um, I do think that as far as timelines go, if we had um, the data at hand now, um, we could have a up and running platform within six to nine months, um, if we had the data in hand. So for example, the, the, plat or the, the models that we've already built for PERS type one, we already have a, a initial version of, of how that could be a web-based tool for, um, for producers or practic practitioners. So, so, um, so if we have the data in hand, it's actually fairly quick. Um, and then the, the, the side note to that is, um, I don't think that we'll just be done after building it once. These models can be um, refined, we get new data, we get um, new variants that we might want to add. Uh, we maybe get uh, more powerful machine learning tools that might do better than what we currently have. So, so I also don't think it's a, a one and done sort of thing. I think it's something that can be continually um, improved, even if we have, you know, version 1.0 available um, for the broader industry. There might be a version 2.0 and a version 3.0 as well. That's that's hopefully would would get better and better. Fantastic. Um, and I think there are analogies we can pull out uh, of other uh, programs to help with PERS in terms of the generational aspect of it. Um, uh, I can never think about the University of Minnesota and not think about the, the late Dr. Bob Morrison. Um, and um, one of the, the phrases always associated with Dr. Morrison was do work that matters. Um, and doing work that matters is often a long and frustrating process. But I think of, of the M-SHIMP program, you know, formerly just the SHIMP program. And then as Dr. Morrison passed away, the, the Morrison Swine Health Monitoring Program that's now, um, uh, you know, Cesar Corzo and his team is involved with and also um, funded through SHIC, um, you know, a wonderful program started back in 2009 that still is ongoing today, still requiring resources, but always developing new information, great information. And I think about what uh, Bob did with, uh, at, at the time, a graduate student named uh, Dr. Daniel Linhares. Um, and Dr. Daniel and Bob put together the, at that time, called the Time to Negative Pig Study. And it really revolutionized how those of us in the field that are looking for solutions to PERS applied PERS management strategies, right? It opened our eyes to the value of immunity. Um, and it, um, it it really transformed the industry. And, and I, I don't say this lightly, I think your work has the opportunity to follow down those same pathways, both in terms of the generational approach as the virus evolves, continuing to update the model for the, the newest and most relevant sequences. 
but also in hopefully giving us information that makes us much better decision makers when it comes to uh, preventing PERS clinical disease and, and ultimately addressing PERS clinical disease when we do see it. I know we've got Layman coming up uh, here next week, and I want to give a little bit of time for, for you guys to highlight the, the, the program here. Um, I want to I start uh, by congratulating Dr. Carissa Odlin with Pipestone uh, Veterinary Services, this year's Layman Science and Practice Award winner. Um, uh, I've known Dr. Carissa for many, many years. She works with a wonderful team there at Pipestone, and I couldn't be happier for her and the entire team to be honored with that recognition. Certainly that'll be a big part uh, of Layman, but what else are you guys excited about for next week at Layman? Any, any topics, speakers, uh, maybe it's just all the hallway conversation, but what are you, what are you looking forward to Kim next week at Layman? Ah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always looking forward to Layman. Um, I think we have a great program this year. Um, the work that we discussed today is actually going to be embedded in one of the talks in the per session. Um, it's going to, that talk is going to be delivered by Dr. Dr. Igor Proploski, who's another postdoc in um, my lab. And so he's going to be carrying the torch for our broader research program. Um, and this um, work that we discussed today is, is part of that. So, so if you want to hear more details um, about what we talked about today and put that in the broader context of evolution of PERS, um, uh, you should pop in to, to see his talk as part of the PERS session. Um, the other part that I think is really interesting this year is that we are going to, or one of the, the keynotes is actually going to focus on um, the, the um, kind of pathway to actually having PERS resistant pigs or these other um, sort of um, breeding programs or, or I guess um, engineering programs that that's really focused now not on the virus genetics, but on the, the host genetics. And of course, it's not all about PERS, but one of the big um, host genetics projects over the last few years is can, can we have a PERS resistant pig? Mm -hmm. And so that's the flip side of the coin that we didn't talk about today. We are very focused on the virus. And I think that, that the role of host genetics and the variability in host genetics is the other piece of this pie when we talk about does the pig recognize the virus? So I think that, that that's going to be really interesting. I'm happy to see that um, featured in as, as part of the, the keynotes this year um, and really relevant for, for the discussions we had today. Very good. Dennis, how about you? Any uh, particular things you're looking forward to for the uh, upcoming big layman events, layman events that we have coming? Um, sure. Uh, Kim did mention that uh, one of our works will be featured in the main session, but Part of the work that our research group also does is uh, looking at uh, changes in epitope patterns, and that will also be featured. One of our PhD students is presenting in the research uh, day, which will be on Sunday. And uh, it's a short eight-minute presentation that's very um, uh, exciting, and I would welcome every, you know, people to attend to that session and just hear what other things are happening with regards to actual epitope changes through time and how the virus has just evolved through time in terms of protecting itself uh, from the host immunity. All very exciting stuff. Um, and and, and uh, I think it'd be a very nice conference for everyone who hears this podcast to attend. Very good. One of my uh, fam fam favorite layman traditions is a visit to Mickey's Diner, uh, which is uh, just down the road a little bit from the River Center. Um, have either of you ever had the pleasure of going into Mickey's Diner and, and getting breakfast while you're at Layman? 
Kim, you familiar I, with you familiar yeah, with Mickey's? Yeah, no, I, I am familiar. I haven't not been there in years. I'm I'm a Minnesota native, um, and sometimes the issue of being a Minnesota native or even someone who lives with the conferences is you don't do all of the the fun, more uh, I guess out of town visitor type of activities that people do at conferences. And when you're it's in your hometown, you just you just uh, don't get to partake or you don't partake in it in the same way. So no, I haven't had um, breakfast there, but it might be fun to meet some people there for breakfast. Dennis, how about you? Have you have you found Mickey's Diner yet? No, 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 not yet. But I sure will put that on my list of places to visit and have breakfast at. For any of the audience who set it up there. So uh, Kim, I know you know this if you're a native Minnesotan, but Mickey's Diner is truly a rail car diner. And it's kind of stuck in the middle of downtown uh, St. Paul with a whole bunch of beautiful high rise buildings all around it. So it, it sticks out a little bit if you can find it. Um, Mickey's is probably most famous for being the diner in the movie Mighty Ducks. And as, uh, as someone, I'll, I'll, I'll show my age here, Kim, um, as a, a young man in the 80s uh, growing up, when you watch the movie Mighty Ducks, you'll remember uh, Emilio Estevez meets uh, one of the uh, moms, I think, of, of one of the players, and she's a waitress at Mickey's Diner. And I, I can remember finding it initially, walking by it, and thinking, oh, man. And we went in there to sit down, and it was myself and another veterinarian, Jason Burbeck, who sat down to have breakfast there the first morning. And it's a, a short-order cook who's cooking on a, a black tower, a, what they call a griddle a top, you know, right behind the counter. And uh, he took someone else's order first. He said, what do you want? And the, the person ordered the, an omelet. And the short order cook said, uh, we use a full stick of butter in our omelets. Is that okay? And the person was kind of taken aback, like, whoa, a full stick of butter. And uh, but after after they composed themselves, they said, yeah, yeah, okay, I guess that, that we'll try that. And so the short order cook turned to Dr. Verbeck and myself and said, what would you guys like for breakfast? And we both, without blinking an eye, just go, the omelets. <laughs> so uh, that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of the, uh, it's a bit of a greasy spoon, um, but that's always a personal favorite um, to me. And um, I'll, I'll, I thank you very much, um, Dr. Kim and Dr. Dennis, for, for the time today. I know you got very busy schedules, so I want to be respectful of that and get us signed off here. Uh, but thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for, for sharing that with our, our Carthage team um, you know, previously when we had you on for rounds. And thank you uh, for continuing to share it with the industry. I, I don't say it lightly that I think what you're doing has the opportunity to really be breakthrough information for our industry. Um, and thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, thank you very much for having us, and uh, we look forward to seeing all of you at Lehman, and uh, hopefully we'll have a nice time and probably continue this conversation there. Very good. Well, for Drs. Uh, Kim Vanderwall and uh, Dennis McCow, uh, my name is Dr. Clayton Johnson, and uh, this has been Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. Thanks for joining us, and please have a great rest of your day.